Welcome to the Don't Die Podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. We've got 100 people a day dying of drug overdoses, and it's got to stop. Aloe Treatment Centers wants it to stop. We want people to get educated about drugs, about treatment. We want you to learn, laugh, and live, but first and foremost, don't die. So... Uh, that's a, that's, that's that just, we should, we did that like two months ago. That one is wrong now. Guess what came out a week ago? The 2016 statistical death rate, overdose death, get this, leading cause of death in America for 50, for people 50 years and younger, the leading cause of death in America. Oh my. And yet, you know, still not that, all that talked about. But I don't want to be negative tonight. I want to sing that song. <laughs> that song is from 1992. It's called Look at That House Up There. It's about a drug addict. It goes, <clears throat> you ready? You ready? Yes, Chuck? I'm ready. He's like a two-year-old. So he's like a two-year-old. So bratty and so beautiful. Um, sometimes you want to hold him. Sometimes you want to slap him, make him go. It's about a drug addict, that song. It's called mm-hmm. Look at That House Up There. And the chorus is, look at that house up there. He's up there fucking dying. That's That song, that's what it is. Mike's going to complain what did Mike now. Say? Mike, come on in. I heard you moaning in, the, you say, in the studio. Mike Mart? Mike Mart. I was commenting on your empathy. Somebody do something. Yeah, something. Oh, so you, you ah. agree that, that that song is... You were very empathetic even when you were using... How could you not when you looked at him, Mike? But anyways, it's about a drug addict friend of ours. And and none of us really were in a position in like 91 to really do much. But I could, I just felt like somebody's got to do something. So it only fit that you'd go into doing what you do. And for $1, I will tell you who that drug addict is that that song is about. <laughs> I know. Since he's not going to tell you. See, that's the horrible thing is like everybody's, everything about our lives has become like a nostalgia and a book and, you know, people, it's so funny. The amount of books about indie rock in the 80s is amazing. Like everybody from, from Babes in Toyland, uh, 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 Two two uh, babes two babes in Toyland books. My this gal I really like Kathleen uh, uh, Catherine. Uh, well, I won't get into it. But there's a lot of books. Bob Mold has a book from Husker Du. Bob Mold's great. Uh, Keith Morris has a book from Circle Jerks. Keith Morris um, is great. The replacements have two books about them. One is amazing about the just the history of the replacements. Paul it's or the Stinsons. The all thing. of them it's about the replacements it's called i forget i got it in my office um but there's a million books and everything's analyzed including about my own life so so it's really strange to have all these recollect flea's now writing his autobiography he's actually doing it like duff mckagan did where he's actually writing every word of it it's hmm. crazy me and Anthony didn't do that. We kind of <laughs> But what's funny is, so this hyper-analyzed lives of these lost kids, musicians, adults, you know, is now, you know, everybody's like treats it now like nostalgia rather than a learning lesson about trauma survivors, addicts, you know, because everyone, every, one of the best books about it is Bob Mould's book, right? Oh, okay. And so... So I, what, I don't know his story at all. I know it's his music, and his vocals are never loud enough, but well, he's it's, great. Well, it's similar to, well, you know Henry Rollins' story, because he talks about it right. so much. His dad was in the military, and he wanted to kick people's asses and all that. 
And so when I look back on the 80s and think like this, what has been more scrutinized than the indie rock movement in the last 10 years in literature? Nothing. So everything you did, who that song is about, is analyzed in books. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That house that I'm referring to, look at that house up there, is kind of legendary, including the person who bought it out of foreclosure from the IRS. No. <laughs> when they came to, to secure the property, there were so many needles in the house that it was a health code. <laughs> it was a hazardous. <laughs> Literally, there was a corner of the living room that was like a two-foot-tall pile of dirty needles Gross. with no caps on it. So, but we all survived. That's what I want to tell parents. We all survived. We all well, are alive. You know, anyone around to tell a story is alive. Otherwise, listen, just- I'm talking about everyone I knew shot speedballs constantly for 10 years. Most of them more lived. Me and Mike's friend Robin died. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob Graves and our band died. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hillel and the Chili Peppers died. But mm-hmm. all the rest of us survived. Everybody, sure. how about this? Everybody in Guns N' Roses is alive. That's crazy. Everybody in Jane's Addiction is alive. That's crazy, too. I'm tired of people saying, oh, you know, you'll die of drugs. No, no, very few of us did. The problem is 30 years later, children are dying in droves like flies, and we have to do something about it. Right. Right? And so I just thought one of the key things I wanted to do a show about so parents can gain better insight about what you and I are dealing with on a daily basis. And tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, the reason why the 80s are so celebrated is because we had a lot of fun. We were having fun. It wasn't all misery. Yeah. The kids nowadays start in misery. I'm telling you. I mean, I'm not talking about raver kids going to Coachella. I'm talking about the addict, the opioid epidemic addict kids. They started in misery Mm -hmm. at 18, 17 years old. They had no fun. They didn't form a band and go to Japan and smuggle a syringe up their butt because they can't get syringes there. (laughs) Like my friend, I won't say his name, but Mike knows exactly what I'm talking about. So you couldn't get syringes into Japan. Well, you can drugs were really illegal in Japan. Do you know Paul McCartney was arrested in Japan and, and yeah, but it was just for, weed, right? Yeah, and he was held for weeks. And he's Paul McCartney, and he's fucking Paul Beatle. McCartney. So imagine us going there. You gotta like, gotta be so, smart. So a certain bass player, I'm not gonna say his name because it's embarrassing, but he just was not gonna give in to you can't do drugs in Japan, which was kind of the norm, even. Even ministry just kind of signed up no like, way. we're not going to be able to do drugs in Japan. <laughs> no, Al jumped on the not doing drugs. You got to get methadone and you got to just make it oh through my. 10 days. <laughs> oh my. But not a certain bass player I know. So he had this whole thing. He's going to put a syringe in a condom. I believe that's how it was. I wasn't there when it happened. I just heard oh, post. Oh, sure you were. Post. I think it was no, your idea. No, no. <laughs> I just I just was like a no-go zone. I never went to Japan. I was just like, you can't go to Japan. There's no Coke. There's no heroin there. Like, why would you go there? You can go now. But, the, and the funny, the other friends of mine's band would go there for two days and get over to Australia as fast as you can. <laughs> get to where the heroin is. And the reason why I tell these stories is because they're real. We were having fun. Yeah, was there misery? Were we dope sick? Did we have to get money? Yes. But also in that 
was having fun, staying out all night at a bar, having meeting people, going around. I remember me and Fashante one time were on tour, and he said, I, I had met the guy who owned the local record store, right? Because Thelonious Monster was a kind of record store geek, like High Fidelity. Wasn't there a movie, High Fidelity? Yeah, that was a bad movie, but I get the point, yeah. The John Cusack character was a fan of Thelonious Monster, right? But So I would meet them all and, you know, drink with them, go to bars after sound check and stuff like that. And then the Chili Peppers would be there, and then they had the means to, like, get shit done. You know what I'm talking about? They had money. Mm -hmm. So John, I said, John... I met the dude who owns the local record store. We'd go in there after the get, he'll open it up tonight. And we would go in, we went in this record store and uh, we just bought like, well, we didn't buy it. Like John bought, John did. John bought <laughs> hundreds of records. You know what I mean? What, and ship them so home? Fun. Yeah, and just ship them home, put them in the boxes and ship them home and the records that you can find in LA. Because there was that, you know, in the 80s and, and then early 90s. There were, you know, only yeah, looking that, for these know, records. Kids you couldn't don't get find. that either. The they fact you can go it. online, I still, my wife won't go to um, Amoeba with me because I can, I could be in there hours. All, yeah, hours. And she goes, I don't get it. And well, I can't understand how you can spend that long looking for shoes, but I can spend that long yeah. looking for because I'll find one thing that like reminds me of something else, reminds me of something else, and I, I keep. So hunting. there was so much fun stuff that we did, like just fun, just crazy stuff and sad stuff, but it was real human stuff. Right. Right. So when, this is in my book, when Stephen got kicked out of Guns N' Roses, everybody was worried about him, right? And I was sober at the time. So, and so some of the bandmates said, will you like buddy-buddy with him and like look out for him or whatever? So I went over to his house and I was knocking on the door and he wasn't answering. And I went around the side and I looked in the window and he was sitting, I'll never forget it, sitting in this big recliner chair, watching Guns N' Roses videos on TV, Aww. shooting heroin and coke, I imagine, crying. And I, and I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh my God. And just then, the guy who had asked me to come look, after, you know, look out for him was parked up the street and came walking up to the house. And he goes, is he okay? And I was like, dude, it's one of the saddest things ever. You guys can't do this. Like, because Steven's just the sweetest guy. He, he reads that way, at least yeah. from what I've seen. I've never met him. And so, but. so you know, and I was sober, so he started coming over to my house and I always tell the story. He loves his story. So I was, he saw me as the, as the gateway back into Guns N' Roses. This isn't like whenever he got kicked out when they had Civil War or whatever, the song, right? And so Civil War was on the radio. He had, was in the band on that song, but he was out of the band, right? So he was hanging out at my house and I was sober and going to 12-step meetings. I'm not going to say which Wh one. Whichever one, whichever one that was. <laughs> So I got you. So so you know, and he'd come over to my house in the morning. We'd have coffee and whatever, and he was still struggling, right? But he okay. would make it like two days, and then whatever, right? And that old age old thing that's in one of the twelve step books. I won't say Whichever which one, one. Where they come and live at your house. He was basically right. doing that, but staying at his house, right? He lived like four miles away from me. So one time he's at my house, bright eyed and bushy tailed. You know, when you're a junkie, you can look in somebody's eyes and you know, like they didn't get high this morning, <laughs> yeah. right? And so I'm just like, you're really doing this? And I hugged him and whatever. And I, and we decided we were going to go eat. We we're going to go get our car wa cars washed and go eat. Cause it was like we lived in the valley. And I was like, well, that's, that's a what big day. Big day. We're gonna go. That's eat. a big day in the life of two sober musicians. All right, this is okay. Like, so let me get this straight. So we're gonna go to the car wash and we're gonna like have them wash the cars 
And then, and then we're going to go eat. Then, That'll be exhausting. I'll need a nap after yeah, that. I, I would think. <laughs> Not before noon, though, right? So, so I'm riding behind him. He's Because we're going to the car wash on Ventura Boulevard right near uh, Coldwater Canyon. And I'm driving behind him. And... You know, and it's like I lived at Barham and the 101 freeway by uh, by uh, Barham, right? By Universal Studios. So we're okay. driving like f four or five miles to the car wash. He's ahead of me. <laughs> he gets out of his car, pulled into the car wash slot. I get out of my car. We both have our little things that we're going to go wait for our cars to be washed, right? He looks at me and his eyes are pinned. And he's high oh. in the time from driving it, while he's driving his car in That's front of me. That's pretty impressive. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm, I, I want to reassure the people at home. Stephen Adler is wonderful. He's still alive. That was in 1991. Right? Mm. So this idea that all addicts have always died, that's not true. Not like now. No, this, this is a new animal. It's a similar animal, but it's it's so much ferocious. And I think a, a lot of it is, I actually ran a group on the on that topic of what is more important to you than getting loaded. And there's nothing. It's so weird. There's like, nothing. We, but remember, we liked music. We liked No, we girls, had other things. We liked right. a lot of things. Right. It wasn't, I mean, eventually it gets to that point where it gets dark and where that's all that is in that little bitty circle where you're going 100 miles a day in a five mile, you know, radius. Yeah. But... It seems to start there now. It's starting there. And parents it, need to understand that. So what the solution is, it, and because, because when it got dark for us is when we started contemplation that drugs were causing the darkness. Kids are pre-contemplative in the darkness, if you follow me, right? I do, if you're talking. They're not yeah, contemplating because they have no hope, right? right? They have no idea that... Wow, we used to have so much fun, right? Let's get back to fun. There, I mean, there wasn't that fun. <laughs> There's no fun to get back to. You've never right. had fun. Right. And, and though it doesn't sound like you're having fun um, shooting speedballs and playing music, why are there so many books about it? Because it was fun, and people love reading about the fun and wondering, like, how did they do that? I had somebody tell me, like, how did you make records and be on heroin? And I was like, I don't know. You, I, I would kind of clean up. Mike would never clean up. How we made Stormy Weather, which is probably the best album Mike, Mike and I Mike ever Mark. made, right? We, he, was, he was insane making that record, and he wrote most of it. Amazing songs, right? Mike Mart was unconscious making that record. I wasn't. I was just drinking. I would like go through all kinds of coping strategies. Right? <laughs> You're writing a treatment plan, coping strategies, and of how to how to make it all kind of keep moving forward. Right? The kids I'm dealing with don't even know what that means. Like I say, you know, I didn't do heroin for two and a half years in the middle of my active use. Right. And they're just like, why would you do that? Because <laughs> I didn't have any choice. Because my mom wasn't paying for myself. No, my because uh, because it was. Uh, it's that thing of trying to figure it out. So I went to rehab. I got off everything, right? Then about four months sober, I started drinking beer. They told me I was going to do heroin if I started drinking beer, and I didn't. 
and I had this rule like I am not doing heroin and I stayed away from Mike and I stayed away from Pete I stayed away from people that I knew did heroin right and I I kind of made this promise to myself I kept that promise for two and a half years right we have to start acknowledging our own stories and trying to help young people achieve that and one is about fun and crazy you know you can be sober and crazy and here's the thing they never have had any fun and then we're trying to tell them you can't have any fun here in the 12-step world like no you should be able to have fun that's why i went tw two times to speak at wikipaw out in, in vegas i love that they're all fucking and they're all crazy and doing crazy things <laughs> but they're sober and social right. distortions playing at the hard rock and they're having fun like fun it's supposed to be fun life is supposed to have joy in it yeah. Not just rules and psychobabble. No. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, that's huge. It's it's huge. Right now, you know, uh, it, I won't say him, but the, the guy I work for, you know, he takes the clients on trips, and there are so many clients that are looking forward to this next trip, you know, because they, they went up to the Russian River up in Sacramento. Yeah, and have you know, fun. Yeah, and put them out there on, on jet skis and have them pull on to go down the river on a raft, stuff they never did. You know, and showing them that there is more to life, and that, that, you know these these kids that they light up because they don't know they don't know what to do or how to do it, and it's not their parents' fault. It's these kids they're they're in this weird they start in a downward spiral, and that's where you know when I started using uh, it was just marijuana and beer, like most people, when I first mm -hmm. started using, and I smoked pot and I drank, and the world didn't end, and I had fun, and they'd all been lying to me because they told me it wouldn't be fun. And how? Yeah, there's a lot of institutional lies in our and, society. Uh, yeah. and now I think psychobabble and actually progressivism is a psychobabble. It's a lie, right? You're supposed to make mistakes when you're a kid. You're supposed to fall in love with people who are bad for you. You're supposed to learn from life. Right. No, right? it's beautiful. It went done correctly. <laughs> you know, if it's done, done without any forethought. <laughs> it's like someone told me, dude, you're too old to be a punk. Because you know too much. Punk rock is great when you're a youngster, but after 35, you just got too much knowledge in your head. My friend Pete said that. I thought that was so great. <laughs> he goes, you know too much to be a punk, man. You can't think about stuff. No, but I, I disagree. I think punk is to... I think Bernie Saunders is punk. I think there's <laughs> punk everywhere. There is I punk agree. everywhere. Anti-authority, anti-consumerism, anti... Beyonce is what punk rock represented. And there's a generation now growing up in conformity. Their parents are conformist. The children are taught conform conformism or yeah. whatever the word is. There's a whole lot of lockstep going yeah. on. Yeah. And when I when the 80s, when all this kind of exploded into the zeitgeist of pop culture, you had straight edge, you had the hardcore scene in LA, you had New Wave, you had the Cars, you had Devo, you had these explosions the of intellectual. But I always see Devo as like, that's who, you know, that, that's who college kids like. Talking Heads, Devo, X, and right? That stuff's good. But it's great music. Good. But there was music for college kids like me and Chris Hansen that was in Filoni Sponsor. We grew up together, right? We loved those bands. I remember going and seeing 
ex in vivo on New Year's Eve in 1979 into 80, it was all people like us, like nerdy college kids and whatever. Then I would go see the Circle Jerks at Redondo Beach, whatever that thing was called. What was it called? I don't. I didn't get to Redondo Beach. Uh, I saw them at the, the Fleetwood. I think it was called. And I would, you know, I was scared of the punker hardcore kids, but I liked the music and I liked Keith, and it was just fun, fun, fun. And we need to reinstill fun and allow young people their rites of passage and all this. Instead of institutionalizing them into psychobabble and all our bullshit, you I know, liked, we came liked, to our bullshit in, in in when we were 35, 30, not twenty. Right. Right. Well, I like what you said about like you were talking about. Um, I don't even know what it's called anymore. That big thing that you go out into the desert, Coachella, Coachella. and you were like, you know, as soon as you go in, you turn left, and there's people there doing twelve step meetings. You know, you you go, you hang out, you have fun. New people should be out doing things. Young they people should be, should be out. Doing should be out fun doing. Things. You know, if you're forty and you've got kids and you've got a wife, you, that it's a little different. You go in a little bit different. But if I you're in a Winnebago with Wi-Fi. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm talking about life in general. I mean, if you're 19, 20, No, I went 20, to Coachella this year with two little kids. You. <laughs> and we had a Winnebago, and Elvis was constantly like, Wi-Fi's breaking down, so you can restart the Wi-Fi. Oh, <laughs> Go outside. Go ride your scooter without a helmet. <laughs> yes, ride your scooter without a helmet. An act of defiance against yes. the man. Punk That's rock. what punk rock is to me. <laughs> punk rock is, I'm going to nurse my child sitting in the backseat of my car and fuck society for telling me I'm a bad mom. Right? Right. This whole fear-based com- you know, com- compliance, get in line shit, punk rock can rebel against that still 40 years after the big bang of punk rock. Right, Steve Jones every afternoon on KLOS is punk rock. He's proselytizing, like you know, question things, question things. I'm reading his book; it's really good. So, what is Noodles' question? I heard Noodles had a question. He does. Um, He says uh, two questions. First, what's a good book that, as accurately as possible, describes a modern day addict's life? I think the last good one I read was Basketball Diaries, and it helped keep me away from heroin. Second, what's the weirdest place you've ever seen a junkie inject drugs? Oh, well, I can tell that story. That's a good one. (laughs) I got the best story of that, Noodles, you'll ever hear. (laughs) And it it was shocking, and it was sexy, and it was was unbelievable, my vision of that thing that I'll tell you about in a second. Mm -hmm. But let's get about the books and what's inspiring. What what seems to be inspiring to the new generation is not going to come in book form. It comes in movement form, right? In, in, on the internet, in, in groups and kind of inspirational kind of things, right? So okay. one of the things that's happening right now is teenagers, kids in Russia are standing up in a revolution against the Russian authoritarian regime. Did you know that? No. It's all happening. It happened today and yesterday. Thousands of teenagers got arrested in Moscow. Oh, good for them. Saying, fuck you. Good for them. Right? Fuck the oligarchy. Fuck Putin. Right? I just love shit like that. So, so they're somehow communicating you know, through the internet, some sort of uh, movement. The Bernie Saunders movement was a big movement of young people saying, fuck you billionaires, right? Fuck your way of believing in things, right? So there's this punk rock movement going on. But as far as addict books that I've read, Nikki Six book is pretty rad. You ever read it? The Heroin Diaries? Yeah, it's fucking 
pretty spot on. Yeah, it's pretty good. He's he's pretty dramatic. Yeah, I know, but but that's Motley Crue in that whole. Yeah, metal no, it thing. is. The whole thing's kind of larger than life. I mean, my wife read it, and it was just it but was if mesmerizing. You tone, if you tone it down that it's Nikki Six and Motley Crue, it applied to my life. That's it, kind of how my life was. Well, I, I mean, I wish. I mean, the idea that you have this great big house to get loaded in. No, but I mean the Narcan. Like, uh, oh yeah, we all had Narcan long before. The actually before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, before Narcan was cool. Before it was trendy, we, had, we were we totally had syringes <laughs> of Narcan on 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 site. <laughs> so far ahead of the curve, Bob. <laughs> well, it sometimes takes the paramedics a long time to get there. I always tell this story. Uh, I had this apartment. Well, actually, Brian Small from The Hangman had this apartment. Then he went to rehab, so I had it. (laughs) And it was a great apartment over in La Brea and Franklin. And, you know, that's where all the musicians would come to kind of converge to get drugs to go back up into the hills. It was like a safe place for the rock stars to come and score, right? And so so one night, me... uh, certain alternative rock singer that's very tall in a band i i you know it sounds like his name might start with a t no 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 a g oh really (laughs) oh oh, okay i know i know so and and a band that we just talked about a few minutes ago ministry okay (laughs) and a couple other why does nobody mind throwing al out under the bus (laughs) nobody (laughs) nobody minds because he throws himself under the bus all the time no i know and some of the rest of us are like trying to be citizens i've never (laughs) met him but i have stories about him from everyone he's amazing he's a fun guy he was he's like he's like the he's like the Ian Mackay of the other side. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah he's no, like, that was he's intellectual. He's funny. He's sharp. He's witty. He's he is that. Just like Ian is that. Right. Right. Okay. He's like, okay. So I Al's take that. like Al and Ian are the continuums of indie rock and philosophy. Okay. Right? Yeah. So it's Al, me, his friend Brian, Gibby, a couple other people. You just right? said his name. <laughs> So, so, You're bad so at the guy, we, and the dope dealer came to bring dope and spreading out the dope to all throughout the land via my house. Right? Nice. And this Brian guy does it, and me and Al are about to do ours, and the Brian guy goes blue, right? Okay, bad. And it's just yeah. like, oh my fucking God. And we looked at each other. <laughs> Like, holy fuck. Now we got to stop doing what we're doing and resuscitate this motherfucker. And Gibby was really not on that level of drugs. He was more of a hallucinogens, fun up guy, right? And so me and Al, like, and so then we put (laughs) Brian down on the ground. Now start CPR. And and he's like, he's, he's clenching his teeth. And I yelled, Gibby. Get us something to pry open his teeth. Gibby was in the kitchen. He didn't really know what was going on in the living room. So he comes in and he's not really, you know, that type of a addict guy where you know what to do when people OD on heroin. Okay. So, so so I go, get something to open his teeth. And Gibby's looking and he's like, oh, nervous and whatever. So he goes and he brings a butter knife. Right? He's just like, not, okay. And then, like, you know, we're trying to pry open his teeth to give him CPR. And Al's doing the chest thing. And, and, uh, and so I said, well, fuck it, fuck it. And Gibby was looking confused. I said, get a towel. 
So he went in the bathroom, got a towel, then we wrapped it around the butter knife, and then Al put it in, like, by this time, the air vents opening, you're doing the nose and whatever. We were all versed in CPR and whatever, and the, my girlfriend, Max, had called 911, and, you know, because, you know, we all knew, like, cops don't do anything anymore. You just need to save the person's life. So given CPR, cops come, paramedics come, they resuscitate him, they take Brian to uh, the hospital, I, I remember, on Vermont and Fountain, right? And then Al and I... And There's the, a hospital on Vermont. Yeah, Vermont and Fountain, like a Catholic hospital there. Mm, There's a children's hospital at Vermont and Sunset. Then there's another one south of there. Okay. There's an emergency room that's near my house. So, so they're taking him there, and me and Al are getting down to business to go, you know, eventually go down and get Brian, right? And I think Brian was his name, yeah. And, uh, and... So, so that all happens, and the cop is there, and we had hid the drugs, and they, the LAPD was being very cool at this point, 93, 94. Like. And Al, had to look, Al looked odd by then. Oh, my God. We all, Gibby, me, and Al? Like, <laughs> you know, like, we, five years prior to this, we just get arrested for being at a gas station. <laughs> right. And now we're like, people are ODing in my house, and they're just like, okay, have a nice day. <laughs> like, so, so... So everybody eventually, ministry goes out of town. Brian lived. Everything Brian goes lived back. Good, good. He goes back home, and it's a new gang in my house, and this girl ODs. And so then, same thing happens. We were resuscitator, call nine one one. It was like two weeks later, right? <laughs> it's the same cop. <laughs> and, Hello, Mister so, Forrest. And so, so they take the girl. Uh, you know, and she's breathing and she's on her own and we know what hospital she's going to and whatever. So this relates to the Nikki Six. Like you think like, oh no, it's all dramatic and whatever. It was happening at my house in a different indie rock way. <laughs> Here sounds more Pulp two Fiction. bedroom apartment. <laughs> way more Pulp way. Fiction than what? Your thing sounds more like No, a you pulp? just call 911 and keep them breathing. <laughs> it's not Pulp Fiction. It's not dramatic. It was just an everyday, once in a while occurrence. So the girl, they take her out and, uh, and then the cop just kind of lingers in my doorway, and I'm trying to want to get her gone. And I, I'm like, "Well, thank you so much, and I'm sorry for all the trouble and whatever." I don't know what to say. <laughs> and she goes, she just looks at me. She goes, "Yacht, not a party so hard around here." <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you yacht, know, not a party. Yacht, so. not a party so hard around here. <laughs> and uh, I remember just thinking, like, "Okay, thank you, <laughs> thanks for the." That's a chorus. Yacht not a party. Yacht not so. a party so hard around here. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the second OD in two weeks. And uh, so I always think, I read the Nikki Six book. Maybe it was at the right time in my life. I was like eight or nine years no, sober. I, I read it and I was just was, like, it was I can relate. I'm not a rock star like Nikki Six or nobody like my friends weren't rock stars like that in big mansions. We were more like down near Sunset Boulevard more. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? But what was go what he described in that book was going on at my house, right? Right. No, yeah, there are pieces of it that are, that are universal. Yeah, that, so, but but the fun part of it was like Robin Crosby from Rat was Mike's friend, right? And mm -hmm. he he was so gracious to us and Thelonious Monster. Yeah, he shows we up always, in that book. We always used his guitars. All the Thelonious Monster records are made on Rat on Robin's guitars because oh. they stayed in tune and they were good guitars <laughs> yeah. and whatever. So because ours were shitty and didn't stay in tune. So yeah. Robin's over at my house one night and we're doing drugs. We're sitting in my in my den, little tiny little den area, and it was like a drug doing 
area, but it had a TV, and I was a big basketball fan. I'm watching Bulls Detroit game, right? And Robin's sitting there, and Robin was not a sports person at all, as I assume you are not also. I've always been a big sports guy. So I'm watching the basketball game, and Robin says the funniest thing. He, he's in the middle of his speedballing, kind of like hanging out. He looks up, and he goes, where did they say that game is at? And I said... This is Salt Palace in Detroit. And he goes, I think I'm playing there tomorrow night. (laughs) 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 I remember. But it was so two worlds. Like this world of the big rock stars who are playing the basketball arenas tomorrow night are in the indie rock dude's house on Fountain Avenue. And we're all just friends. And we're all just having fun. We're all just trying to learn. And we're all just trying to grow up. And we're all just trying to get along. That's how L.A. was in the 80s and 90s. It was not how people think it was. You know what I mean? I knew all the metal guys. No, yeah, it wasn't. Ricky Rocket lived across the street from me. Chris Goss, the guitar player, singer of Masters of Reality, I remember when he moved into this apartment on my block and he had a garage sale and I went over there and he was selling records and it was Richie Blackmore's Rainbow Rising and I bought it and he was like, you you like Rainbow? You know, because I was like indie rock dude. And I was like, fuck yeah. We formed a friendship that day in 1987 that has lasted 40 years. You know, 30 years. Right? We still talk. We're still friends. But here's this guy coming from New York and Rick Rubin and fucking heavy metal rock guy. And this indie weird nerdy glasses guy. But it was all just musicians and a community of people. And what bonded us? Drugs, right? But drugs were something that we were doing, but there was something more to it. And when I look at young people today, there's nothing more to it. They're just anesthetizing themselves with drugs. There's not a community of them. They don't talk. They don't relate to one another. They don't meet each other and go eat. They're, they're not doing all the things that my generation of addicts did. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? No, that's <clears throat> especially, you know... People probably have this in other places, but I know that time in L.A. was totally magical for me. I ran into a, a guy from uh, Francois from Motorcycle Boy. Oh, yeah. Francois uh, worked I, at Millie's. He's he okay. So I run into him at my, my friend's band was playing up at the Terragram a couple of weeks ago. I run into Francois and we start talking about how you could go out every night of the week and see a good band of a different genre. If it wasn't Community FK, it was Concrete Blonde. If it wasn't Concrete Blonde, it was oh, yeah, human this drama. Thing, this idea, it, like, let me tell you this. I like this idea that there were these genres and you didn't I went to that fucking uh cat house every Wednesday night. Yeah, there was a band cat house and there was a club cat house and there was there big was girls in clown house. <laughs> cat cat house, house yeah. whatever it was called. It yeah. was at uh it was on La Cienega and uh and right near the Beverly Center. And that, you know what and and I would go from we'd go I from I think the band was called Faster Pussycat. No, F- Faster Pussycat isn't Cat House. Uh, that was a different band. That was, Who was Tammy's cat band. Who was Ricky Rackman? Uh, was was he had the club? And then Who there was ran a guy the named Cat House. It was Ricky. No, yeah, yes, Ricky Rackman was the. Was it was at. It was on La Cienega. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The backside of this building. I just loved going there. I would walk in. I was nerdy glasses hat guy. Like I 
still am. And there are there were a bunch later. of peacock guys, but they were cool. And we didn't we didn't fight. We didn't have problems. You could go anywhere from the anti club to white trash at go go to club lingerie to the screams to all the way to. And the, what was it? It was a youth. It was a young people's movement. I remember. In one week, like you're saying, I was also a show promoter, right? So I did a show with MDC, which is Millions of Dead Cops, a hardcore band. I did a show with The Bangs in the same week. MDC and The Bangs, which became The Bangles, right? At my club on Melrose. Like that that rarely will happen these days. <laughs> How about this? How about a club that Circle Jerks play at? Uh, uh, Steve Jones, and uh, when he first came to town, played at with the Germs, fronting the Germs. No way. Right. Uh, every band, Black Flag played one of their first shows with Henry Rollins at my club. The fucking Horseheads playing that get kicked <laughs> out of the fucking club gets me canceled at the club. How funny. It was the craziest thing ever. I was like, what did they do? The, something about texting the Horseheads just offended almost everyone. <laughs> That's Whether amazing. it was their carelessness, drunkenness, what text looked like, something about it Man. made club owners just like more than the germs with Steve Jones fronting them. That's crazy. That's cool. That's a that's a feather in your cap, Mike Martin. You know, personally, I think it was because Tex liked to masturbate. Yeah, got, got the Sunday Club closed. <laughs> it was called the Sunday Club. I had this idea. I go to different clubs and I'm it moved a couple times but the one he got kicked out me out of was on on hollywood boulevard and sunday club was a mixture of genres of bands from 4 to 8 p.m on sundays so los lobos and black flag played together how cool how fucking cool is that that's pretty cool right and then so it was texting the horseheads and the big boys and texting the horseheads ruined this thing that had been going on like a year and a half they just got it i couldn't get the next club to do it right it was oh. at the cafe de grand it was at this place on hollywood boulevard and it was at a space i rented on melrose called after everything else so i ran sunday club there and then i had a club that opened at midnight and closed at 4 a.m and you could bring your own booze how great is that kids need to start doing this yeah instead of parents saying oh you can't do that oh beer yeah there's so many <laughs> no's nobody was telling us no and if they did we told them to fuck off oh yeah isn't you, what keith says in the in this in the decline of western civilization at the bottom it says thank you very much you can tell them to fuck off right if somebody said no to me i tell them to fuck off 20 somethings and the and the youth of america is so dependent on the people they should be telling fuck off to, that there's nothing happening. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I see it in small pockets, but it's not like it was. It really, it really was. It were, you know, but I think it could happen again. And I hope it does happen again for their sake. But anyways, getting to noodles. I loved Heroin Diaries. I thought it was a great book. You know, you felt like it was too elitist or something. No, no. I see everything I say gets blown up. No, what I also, but I liked all the dirt. The Motley Crue book that, that did all four of them. Oh yeah, it was a biography of. Yeah, that was that was a, that was a good one too. And I read that before the Heroin Diaries, and it was it. So when I read the Heroin Diaries after, it was the Motley Crue book. I think it was called All the Dirt. That was that was really solid. And you know what? I I own that noodle, so I can let you borrow it. Anthony's book is good. Scar tissue is good. I haven't read that. I hear I hear you make a cameo though. As a uh, transvestite having Hunter, sex with yeah. person. Yeah, that's what I heard. I heard your proclivities are different than I thought. I was 
It was. It wasn't what it appeared to be on paper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been misrepresented. Uh, Your Honor, <laughs> I, I object. <laughs> I I did have an idea that it was a gentleman, but I didn't mind. <laughs> That's hey, good for you. Yeah. So <laughs> so and then I recommend Bob Mould's book. It's great. Okay. Well, that one. What about what? What's the weirdest place where you saw somebody? Oh, okay. Them? So so. There was a guy named Scott Morrow who was a writer for the LA Weekly. Do you ever remember that guy? It sounds familiar. He had a band called yeah. The Fiends, right? Okay. And he had a beautiful apartment on Beechwood. And that was a place. I was, I was, people worried about having me over to their house because I drank too much and I could cause trouble for people. I don't know why. But there was a strict contingent of just drug addicts, of which a couple of my bandmates were that. Me and Mike were troublemakers, but there was other Thelonious Monster members that were just on heroin and they never caused trouble. You wouldn't even know they were on heroin a lot of the time. Functioning heroin addicts. No, yeah. So, and there was a lot of animosity in Thelonious Monster. We fought a lot, right? So I wasn't really a part of some of the other members' friends' brigade, right? But I was dating this girl who was, right? So I ended up at a party of theirs. It was really a party of of Thelonious Monster people of which I was not invited. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it was at Scott Morrow's house and and I remember I walked in and it was like L7, I don't know if you know this band. Yeah, the, I do. The, do you know the that girls. there was a very big connection between L7 and Thelonious Monster of which two of them were girlfriends of Thelonious Monster members. Okay. Did well, you know that? Did one of them run off with somebody from the Posies? No, that's Mary's Danish. Okay. There's a lot of okay. there's a lot to my life. <laughs> okay, because okay, I remember that that was so. Funny. <laughs> so an L seven was really big by this time, right? Okay, and so they were over at the party, and then I was in. I was invited by the party by a third party, and the part the people holding the party didn't want me there, right? So, and it was a very private, elitist kind of party where everyone's in bedrooms and they're out on patios and they're very fabulous. Mm. I was not a fabulous, fabulous person. I was like a let it all hang out guy. You know how you have to have some decorum to be fabulous. I don't know. I've never been. I was not fabulous. I, I so I keep saying, where's Pete? Where's Scott? Where's Danita? Where's Jennifer? You know, I keep asking everybody and they're like, oh, Bob, you're so depressed. They're all, the, you know, sophisticated heroin addicts. Oh. And I'm wanting to find them because I know they have drugs. Right. So. So finally, I'm like looking around outside and in the patios and whatever, and I'm not really. And then there's a door shut in the hallway. And so I think. And I looked in other rooms, but but not this one, which was the master bedroom. Okay. <laughs> so I thought, they're all in there. It's the only conclusion you can have. They're all in there. And if one if one particular person is in there, I'm not going to be able to get drugs, and I'm going to get kicked out of the party, right? So that was my dilemma. Do I open the door, and what happens when I do open the door? <laughs> so I open the door. Sure enough. There's a male person. I'm not going to say what male person it was. Okay, but, but their they name were starts the with this monster. Oh no! And they're on all fours, and their anus is pointed towards the door of which I am entering into. One of the gals, no. <laughs> couple of the gals from the group I related to prior in the story are sitting on the bed. The girlfriend of the man. 
on, on the all fours. Yeah. Is has a rubber glove on. <laughs> and a big white what looks like animal tranquilizer pill and just as i enter the door she looks and then she starts to spread his anus and push this big pill into his anal cavity gross it is a morphine suppository <laughs> nice he and couldn't put it in himself high. <laughs> no. it was some sort of theatrical thing that was going wow. on yeah and i walked right into that looking at my bandmate's anus with a suppository going in <laughs> he's gonna hate this story he's gonna deny that it happened uh, but, but but there was but, there but. was but this gal had gotten a hold of some more morphine suppositories apparently the greatest high ever Oh, really? I never have tried it. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. The kids put a lot of stuff in their butts these days. But, uh, you know, it was just an experiment, I think, and fun, and the novelty of trying things different and whatever. And uh, and I just remember that. Like, I was not a part of that kind of sophistication, right? So, for one thing, you have to find those. How would you go about finding morphine suppositories? Uh, you'd have to get them from somebody who goes, hey, you want these? <laughs> I don't know what to do with them. I'll stick them in my butt. Could you, could you <laughs> seek them out? I don't. I can't imagine. But I've come across some weird stuff that people go, "Hey, my grandma had these," or the veterinary hospital had this, or this. It's, had it's th- a thing, right? They have a I'm sure they administration do. that goes that way. I'm sure they do because the, the it's it absorbs a lot of things. The kids put a lot of things in their butt. It's one of those things when I go, "Hey, you, you ever put it in your butt?" You know, when you're doing an intake. <laughs> you do that. Yeah. Because it says you can do it, you know, oral, intranasal, um, inhalation, um, intermuscular, smoking, intermuscular. Yeah, you know, and you and know, does it? What's about, the word for anal? They don't have it, but I ask. <laughs> but I always ask because these kids do. I go, you ever put that in your butt? And they look at me weird, and I go, it's not a good idea to put things in your butt. <laughs> but if you do, I need to know <laughs> because what, what and what? What does? How does that affect the treatment plan? <laughs> You got to watch the way they're sitting. They're, they're sitting funny. Well, Maybe. you got to know that anything's possible. One of the guys goes, hey, dude, you don't smoke. Do you grind tobacco? And I go, what's that? And he goes, that's when you put it in your butt. And I go, that's cool. Grind tobacco? Yeah. You put tobacco in there? I said, no, I don't grind tobacco, bro. But There's a lot of the world I still don't really understand. I, I I'm not. I, I, I think I've only had anal sex like two times in my life. Like It's a, <laughs> it's a big deal in the world, but I found it always to be very uncomfortable and not good. I don't know why. Well, but I guess drugs just absorb. You can put uh, you can put alcohol in your butt. You can butt chug. You can do it. You're kidding no, me. I, no, I'm not. And you can get drunk from putting alcohol in your butt. This is what I'm told. It's not something it's I've not, done, but, but I'm telling you. <laughs> Mike's coming no. in. What? That's a true story. Oh, Johnny, we got Johnny's it from a youngster. Johnny's done it. <laughs> Johnny, does it, keep, it keeps you from getting the breath, a right? a 20-year-old kid. Oh my God! He's talking first person. <laughs> so, do they put it in their butt? The answer is yes. Alcohol in the butt. Oh my! Right. He's heard from that'd a reliable source. That'd be in the butt, source. Bob. That'd be in the butt, <laughs> Bob. Be in the butt, Bob. So, so that's probably the strangest. It was just strange because it's such like you got heroin. Why would you need to do that? Because it's fun to get the girl to put on the glove and put on the show and go. Hey, it's going in there. <laughs> and everybody. to do it communally. See, that's another thing. And, and I want to keep reiterating this. So that was a bunch of my friends. They were having fun. They were 25 years old, whatever. You know what I mean? Kids are not doing anything like that no, communally. It's, it's sad. 
It's, it's really and, sad. And there's another reason why the overdose death rate. Because say that morphine suppository has an alter, a negative effect and he stops breathing. There's like five other people there. He's yeah. not going to die. Right? Right, because someone's going to know how to do something or at least they're going to well, call. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it, it's, it's a totally different thing. I got a... I, um, Lisa, the lady I was talking about earlier, I got a question that I'd like to hear the answer from you. Okay. Um, she says I, she liked the idea of the uh, KDAC involvement once or several times a week as opposed to rehab. Is there any kind of network or resource to find counselors that are available for addicts? For one-on-one counseling. Yeah, on an individual basis. So so here's the thing. Uh, when, I, when I've been associated with treatment centers, they never had a problem... Like when I worked at Las Encinas, they they were like, uh, you know, yeah, of course you have private practice. That they saw a private practice of Bob Forrest, and I had it in Silver Lake uh, for years. Uh, that if I had a private practice, say I have five or six clients a week, you know, that's like, you know, more referral sources back to the hospital. That's how they saw it. Hmm. They didn't see it as me having divided loyalties and trying to manipulate things and all the stuff that goes on now. So every treatment center I'm associated with, I want people to have thriving private practices. I know that what the pay scale is. You know what I mean? So you should yeah. be able to, if you're, and plus one-on-one, being a one-on-one therapist and case manager helps you become more nuanced in things. You know what I mean? You don't have a captive audience. You have somebody that has their own life that's coming to see you for recommendations, clarifications, um, support, direction, advice. And you have the time. You have the, you have, you have the focus. Yeah, one hour. One person without interruption, without... I think when I first started doing it, I charged $60 a session. This is probably in 2005 or something. $60 a session. I had like five clients. I was making 300 extra bucks a week. You know what I mean? And I had an office space in Silver Lake that cost $275 a month. It was actually a garage. I converted it <laughs> into an office. It had a sink that I used to pee in. <laughs> oh, no. Wait. I don't even want to go. I'm going to leave that one well, alone. I mean, there was no bathroom. So if you, if you wanted to go to the bathroom, if you were seeing me for therapy, you had to go to... Um, What's a cha-cha-cha, the restaurant on, on Virgil? <laughs> no way. And I would say, you can't make that stuff up. And then I would tell them, like, go to the bathroom before you come. <laughs> like, make no sure you don't have to pee. Mm. Some of them would pee in the in the bushes next to the office. I would have gone in the sink just to do it. No, I wouldn't let people, only me, could go in the sink. <laughs> so anyways, so I, I think private practice is important. I think it helps keep people in the right direction it keeps them having attachment and they'll usually if it's a good attachment with a kdac counselor on a on a and insurance companies are loving it too right i don't know how you go about becoming a kdac certified counselor that takes insurance that seems like a fucking enormous task but i know that they are recommending it and they do like it and in, in discharge planning stuff like that Especially, there's also something that's going on where KDAC counselors are supposed to be seen once a month for people on Suboxone maintenance, right? So really? that you can help form this attachment, encouragement, and direction to maybe get off or have, you'll, you'll be the conduit of, of services available, detox units available, plan, a game plan that the addict can feel safe with. You know what I mean? I think it's a valuable thing that's underappreciated now. It just it went away like so many other things went away in the treatment industry, right? Yeah. So I had a private practice. 
Luisha, who was the program director of, of, of all dual diagnosis programs, she had a private practice, KDAC. Shelly still has a private practice, right? She, she has more people than she can see. She has like 10 or 12 a week, right? So, so I think it's important that KDOCs be dealing with the drug addict community, not marriage and family therapists. And I know I get a lot of shit for that. Um, marriage and family therapy, well, the psych component of treatment has a value, it is, right. does not. Right. It is not superior value to the KDAC twelve-step uh, kind of experience sober addicts. It is not, and and right now it looks like it is, right? And I want to bring it back where at least it's equal. I would like it to be equal. I think both things are are equally valuable, but it seems to have, be this push pull back and forth of what's more important, and it's not serving the addict community to argue no, back I, and forth. No, and I love I love having therapists around. When there are certain things that I feel are way beyond my depth or way out of my you know comfort zone, I love having a therapist to be able to help me out with that. But I think you're right. the The idea that the experience, strength, and hope of an addict helping another addict is really under it's under it's underappreciated. It's underappreciated, and and you know, and it's going to come back because people are dying, and I know how to keep people from dying. I do. I'm not going to be falsely modest. I do. I had the, I ran the most dangerous sober living on earth. No one died in four and a half years. I'm talking about the worst of the worst with only personal accountability, very little structure. And did people use again? Yes. Did they know I loved them? Yes. Did they know I cared about them and I didn't want them to make a stupid mistake? And did I educate them about if they were going to use? Yes. And nobody died. So what I'm talking about, I've put into practice and risked my life, my livelihood to prove it's true, which is if you're honest, like, like straight shooting with people, with young people, with older people, if you if they know that you genuinely care about them, it's not just care for profit, they will latch on to some strand of hope that they can get sober and that they can be like you. And we all need to be examples of that, whether you're a crusty old dude down at the Canyon Club or you're a treatment professional in Huntington Beach or you're an, a therapist in Malibu. We all need to be helping our clients and helping the patients and helping the addict community that's struggling believe that they can have a life beyond their wildest dreams and it doesn't take a lot i i'm not one of those that thinks it takes a lot it takes what it takes and i don't know what it takes for you i only know what it took for me yes well said well said peace out people we'll see you well. next time keep sending us emails and chuck the text and we'll answer the questions and lastly, I'll say, I'm going to get a bunch of shit about that morphine suppository. I know it. <laughs> Everybody hates me. All right, good night. <laughs> hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call. <laughs>